Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Let's check in on the markets in the meantime, and welcome to The Exchange, everybody. Dom Chu is standing by with a look at where we are this hour. Dom? General positivity, Kelly. That's what we're looking at right now. We've got some modest gains for the Dow, the S&P 500, and the NASDAQ. If you can see here, well, you would see here if you weren't looking at some of the three folks in there. But the Dow Industrials, the S&P 500, and the NASDAQ are just about about one-third to a quarter of 1% overall, still above the 4,200 mark for the S&P 500, but still... Technology stocks a big focus today, but the two best performing sectors or two of the best at last check were industrials and material stocks. A lot of that being driven by the better than expected jobs numbers this morning, as well as some positive comments from Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell with regard to compromising on an infrastructure bill with the Biden administration. Some of the best performing stocks in the market today have to do with materials and infrastructure. U.S. Steel is up about 5% right now. Martin Marietta, they do construction aggregates. Think gravel, asphalt, that sort of thing, concrete is up about almost one and a half, two percent. And then United Rentals, which does a lot of rental for heavy machinery, that kind of equipment is up about two percent as well. So watch industrials and materials on that side of the infrastructure trade. And then the stock of the day, it's a meme stock. We've been talking about it for a while. It's very popular on CNBC.com right now. But AMC Entertainment up 21% again. Year-to-date, over 1,000% gains. But crazy enough to think about it, remember the meme stock frenzy back in January. We have now exceeded the market value and price for AMC going all the way past there, $23.81 the last trade there. Uh, This is far and away better than what GameStop has done since the highs that we saw back in the meme frenzy earlier this year. So AMC, big one to watch. Kelly, I'll send things back over to you. Dom, yesterday, AMC 500K was a trending uh, hashtag on Twitter. Sure enough, they meant $500,000 is the share price. So there's a lot of momentum behind this one. Interestingly, I don't see it trending today. No, so so it's not as much today, but there's a good amount of effort being thrown into whether or not they can get mentions up there for some of these meme stocks, which is why you're going to see a little bit more traffic in GameStop as well and others on that kind of Wall Street bets forum on Reddit. If you take a look at some of the top trending tickers that we have on CNBC right now, you do see some of these meme stocks working their way back up again. They have been fairly kind of prevalent in the top 10 over the last couple of weeks or so, Kelly. It's an impressive return and show of force. Dom, thank you for now. We appreciate it. Let's switch gears, talk about the auto market from the big push into EVs by nearly every automaker to rising costs and material shortages and changes in consumer habits. There's no doubt the whole market is at quite an inflection point. And here to talk about it all are Dan Ives, managing director at Wedbush, our own Phil LeBeau and Jonathan Smoke, who is the chief economist for Cox Automotive. Welcome to all of you. Uh, and Dan, I'll begin with you. Let's start with what's arguably been the most dramatic change in this industry in the past year, the shift to EVs. Just yesterday, we saw Ford upping the ante, raising their EVs. EV outlay or spending to $30 billion through 2025. They're expecting EV sales to account for 40% of their global sales by the end of the decade. And last night, the Senate Finance Committee approved the Green Energy for America bill, which raises EV tax credits. Now, despite all this positive news, EV stocks have seen sharp drops recently. Lordstown Motors has lost half its market value. Nikola is down 20%. Tesla's down 8% in the past three months. So, Dan, I turn to you to ask the question with Ford on the scene in a big way with its 
new electric F-150. Who is best positioned to take advantage of the changes in the auto space right now? Look, it's a great point. And right now it's a green tidal wave. And that's what we're seeing now take place in the U.S., really Biden-driven green tidal wave because of these EV tax credits. And, and what you're starting to see now, the lifting of the 200K ceiling, that's going to be bullish for the likes of Tesla and GM. And the increase in overall of tax credits is another tailwind for the space. I believe Tesla continues to be the, the main share gainer you know, incrementally in the U.S., especially with these tax credits. But you look at GM, I look at Ford. Those are ones. I think GM is just a further re-rating stock as they dive into the deep end of the pool. And this is not a fad. I mean, I believe it's really the biggest transformation the auto industry has seen since the 1950s. Well, and you're saying there's a we're in the first inning of a five trillion market opportunity in electric vehicles in the next decade. So, again, I think people are starting to reflect on what share of that is going to the incumbents, to existing players whose equity has been traded pretty cheap because the new uh, kids on the block seem to have all the excitement and all the buzz behind them. I mean, does Lordstown at you know around ten dollars a share offer an intriguing opportunity or is Ford the better bet? Look, I think right now, first off, a rising tide is not going to lift all boats. So I think investors need to pick the, the secular winners. You look at a Ford, that $30 billion, that was a shot across the bow, not just to Tesla, but the broader EV landscape, VW and others, really globally. And I think what you're starting to see with some of these niche players, Fisker, hat, I believe, is going to have a lot of success. But you're starting to see those incumbent vendors, Tesla, some of the core EV names, at least from a street perspective, Bloom's coming off the rose. I believe it's temporary. But right now, there's a lot more room than just one boat in the ocean. And I think this $5 trillion green tidal wave just kicking into its next gear. What we saw from the Senate last night, I view that as a game changer from a tax credit perspective. You know, Phil highlighted this, but there's still, Dan, plenty of concerns about just how green electric vehicles really are um, in the amount of carbon that's required to make them and so forth. Um, where is this going to all point as we see the ESG movement really sort of uh, pressuring companies like Exxon? What happens when EVs themselves are? Uh, when people take a closer look at their environmental impact. Yeah, and I think that you start to go down the sort of path. That's definitely going to be a big question. But right now, it's 3% of automobiles globally are EVs. We think it goes to 10% by 2025, 20% by 2030. But, you know, we still have a lot of room before now and then. And I think you look at these green footprints and everything we're seeing in the U.S., it's carrot in the stick. And now the EV tax credits combined with the overall green tidal wave. Now we're seeing the U.S. catch up to Europe and China, which is really what I view as you know, a big part of our overall green tidal wave thesis. Do we need these tax credits? I mean, EVs are extremely popular amongst higher net worth consumers who are adopting them quickly already. Why do all taxpayers need to subsidize companies like Tesla to spur a movement that is already taking place? Yeah, and I think to that point, it's important. You'll be really looking at cars sub 80,000. But, but to get mass adoption, you're going to need the tax credits. And that's why it was 7,500 now really going to 12,500, you know, especially those with union employees. And it's significant. It's the catalyst. As many consumers, they look at a traditional automobile and EV. They're, they're a fence sitter. This could really get them to drive toward EVs. And you have GM. They're going fully EV by 2035. Look at Ford yesterday. It just shows that's just the next step. To what we view is really going to be just a, almost a fourth industrial revolution playing out. Yeah, and uh, 
again, maybe that move accelerates it and, and maybe it, it happens anyway. But, Dan, uh, as it regards the sort of investing piece of this, especially, we appreciate your perspective today, Dan Ives of Wedbush. Meanwhile, prices for cars, new and used and electric, everywhere you look, they're surging. As a result, Americans are taking out bigger auto loans than ever, just as the industry is going through this major transformation. Phil Lebeau is here with the details and the impact. Phil? Kelly, the numbers that we have from Experian show that people keep taking out bigger auto loans, making bigger monthly auto loan payments. Take a look at these numbers from Experian. These are first quarter loan data numbers. On on average, the average amount borrowed now tops $35,000, up $1,559, about 5% compared to the same quarter last year. The monthly payment ticks a little bit higher to $577. Take a look at the big three. What we refer to as traditionally the big three, GM, Ford, Stellantis, the parent of Fiat Chrysler, all moving higher. Remember, while there's so much focus on EVs, these guys are selling a lot of pickup trucks, a lot of SUVs. That's the hot spot of the market right now. The used market also running hot. This is data from Cox Automotive. It shows that the retail prices that people are paying for used vehicles, now at an all-time high, topping $22,000. And that means used vehicle loans are also surging higher. According to Experian, the average used vehicle loan was just over $22,000 in the first quarter, up 8%, $1,686 compared to a year ago. And that average monthly payment, we used to see it down in the $330, $350 range, now $413. That's good news for the dealership stocks. Take a look at AutoNation and Carvana. Two of these who have benefited from the rotation into used vehicles as well as new vehicles surging in the last year. Kelly. All right. Let's bring in Jonathan Smoke as well. Phil, stay right there. He's the chief economist for Cox Automotive. Jonathan, what would you say is going to be the impact of all of this? Is it unsustainable levels of uh, of debt as we look at the auto piece of it? And, And again, what happens if people start to trade in, broadly speaking, for newer EVs? Well, first of all, the market is severely supply constrained. So that set sort of environment doesn't set up too much risk with regards to pri- major price corrections or declines in the future. And the lending, while it is enabling this strong retail surge, has actually been very conservative. We saw very wide yield spreads last year on auto loans, and we actually saw uh, the, the smallest share of subprime. So lenders have been very conservative. They are starting to become more aggressive because of how strong loan performance has been and how strong vehicle values have been. But we certainly are not seeing lending that in any way would cause you alarm. Jonathan, what happens to car sellers, dealers, whatever you want to say, brands who simply can't get their product to market for the consumer right now? <laughs> they lose share. And that is definitely a differentiator that's explaining which uh, dealerships, which manufacturers are participating the most most in this incredible spring that we've had thus far. So on the new manufacturer side, we're seeing uh, Toyota gain more than a full uh, percentage point in share. Uh, We've seen Honda and Hyundai perform similarly. And what do they all have in common? They had more of the supply of more affordably priced vehicles that weren't selling well last year. But now that you're seeing lending uh, loosen up, uh, they they are able to deliver those vehicles. Uh, Then you also see electric vehicles hot. You know, the prior segment is absolutely true. But a lot of those vehicles are about vehicles that are coming in the future. Mm. And, of course, they're loaded with with semiconductors. So that that actually may delay a little bit of the near term. And then the used market has been incredible And so those who are focused on the used market 
be it Carvana, CarMax, the larger uh, dealership groups like AutoNation, they all have been thriving as yeah. a result. And Phil, how long should we expect this to last? Because if you say it's correlated to the housing market, that might be a multi-year cycle because people continue to try to you know, move to those locations where they can't currently get a house. But if it's more like what's happened with Clorox wipes or you know, even to some no, extent, bicycles. it's going for a while, Kelly. Yeah. It's going for a while. You see where I'm going with I mean, this. We yeah. Are, yeah, we're early on in this. You've got a couple of things. As Jonathan mentioned, you've got a really tight supply right now. You've got an economy that appears to be strengthening. Expected, the expectation is that the unemployment rate will drop a little bit more as we go further into the year. All of that is good for the auto industry in terms of sales. So I think that this goes at least through the end of this year and then well into next year crazy. Jonathan, I see here uh, you're a DJ on the side and you always have a song list for what's happening in the economy. So uh, ahead of our grilling out this weekend, what what's what are you listening to? What's what's the pulse of the moment? Well, I'm looking for everything that's talking about up uh, or higher and higher. So the classic higher and higher is a perfect groove for a Memorial Day weekend. <laughs> All right. I guess if it's true for the auto market, maybe it's true for the whole economy. It's just not on the prices side. OK, we want to boom. We don't want the inflationary kind. Jonathan Smoke, Philippo, thank you guys both for being here today. Appreciate it. And coming up with the country in full reopening mode, let's take a look at some of the stocks poised to take off, including this media name up 14 percent so far this year. We'll tell you about it and why it's a standout. Plus, shifting consumer habits, a hard push for seltzer and a ransomware attack. We'll talk about all of that and more with the CEO of Molson Coors. We're back in a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Stocks are moving higher after that drop in claims for jobless benefits today. With the employment picture improving and vaccinations on the rise, is it too late to play the reopening trade or has the market actually gotten too optimistic? For more, I'm joined by David Katz. He's chief investment officer at Matrix Asset Advisors. And Jerry Castellini is chief investment officer at Castle Arc Management. Welcome to you both. And Jerry, you're saying the reopening conversation is a good bit more difficult now that we're in it. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, the reality is we are vaccinated and we are opening up buildings and offices are coming back. Uh, the, the lines now are, are going to get longer and longer, everything we do. And we as investors have to start processing things like inflation and the impact we could end up having on valuations and an overall market in terms of what that would mean and what stocks we should own. So you have a name, for example, like Freeport, which is exposed to copper prices, you know, positively exposed. Um, Tell me about that. Where else do you think investors can kind of go if they're saying my main thesis is I am worried about a little inflation this year and I want to know what I can own that's going to protect me from that? Yeah. So the the whole inflation story today, the market, uh, the government, the Fed, companies, everyone feels this is a transitory event. We can get through it. No problem. The reality is six months from now, we'll be in the middle of processing a lot of higher prices and everything that you can imagine. 
And you're, you're going to have to decide at that point whether it's really transitory or not. There's probably enough evidence that people will be concerned, and they're going to look for a name that has a direct link to it. Copper is one of these all-in types of names. Goldman Sachs did a great uh, piece on, on copper and Freeport as an example. There, everywhere you go, you're going to need more copper. We don't have enough new mines. We just haven't opened enough of them, and the price is going to go up. And that's the kind of name that an investor will have to gravitate to, particularly at three or four times EBD EBITDA. It's sure. just too cheap. And the same is true of Diamondback on, on the oil side. We just don't have enough ready-to-market supply for so many of these things that, that investors directly link to inflation and will want to embrace. David, let me turn to you because I think your thesis is a little bit different. When I look across your plays, I see a lot of dividend yields that, you know, wouldn't perform as well if in kind of interest rates do move up uh, meaningfully, but also less of a concern. So I'm talking about, you know, your ownership in Verizon, um, Amgen, even Becton Dickinson, you know, Viacom. Tell me why these are names that you think investors should own this year. So what you've had is a rolling recovery over the last six to nine months. So the things that did perform well as well in 2020 have started to do a lot better in 2021. Value has come back. Industrials have come back. Financials have come back. We think that's going to continue. The stocks that we're highlighting today are things that have not participated in the rally. So we think they're going to be the next leg. At some point, valuation is going to matter again. And the stocks that we highlighted here are selling at 12 to 15 times earnings, have very good prospects. In terms of the Verizon, it's down on the ATT discovery deal, which really shouldn't have any impact on it. In fact, it makes them probably in a better competitive position for the next uh, 12 months. And we think that yield is going to be important. If interest rates do start to rise, uh, we think these stocks can still do very well. We also like financials, which will do well in a rising rate environment. They picked up uh, very significantly this year. We think that's going to continue. Last one, Viacom. We think the Discovery uh, Time Warner deal highlights the value of content being king. Yeah. And we think the assets are worth a whole lot more than that. Uh, they're one of the few properties that are remaining, and they have a powerful franchise at a great price. David, why not more exposure to commodity names, to tr- kind of the more traditional inflation hedges? Obviously, you're in financials. But what would you say to people about why you're not uh, piling into some of those areas of the market? We think the commodity businesses are going to do well. The earnings are going to do very well. We think a lot of that is reflected in the stock prices already. So we've had some industrials. Uh, We continue to like them, but we have taken some money off the table. Uh, One industrial that that we have is TE connectivity, and that relates to your last two segments on EV cars and on automobiles in general. And basically, they have contracts with all of the electronic vehicle manufacturers. They make the chips capacitors, sensors in those vehicles. So that's the type of company uh, that we think is, is economically sensitive, but really is a play on where the world is going. And it's fascinating to hear from you both with kind of similar but also slightly different takes on, on many of these issues. David Katz and Jerry Castellini, thank you. Uh, we appreciate Thanks it today. Coming up, inflation does hit Main Street. We'll talk about wages and price hikes hitting the highest level since 1981. We'll break down the latest numbers. Plus, Do you want an iPhone with that? We're going to look at McDonald's latest efforts to woo workers. Just wait.
How do you land your dream job? It starts by acing the interview. Go to cnbcmakeit.com slash courses to register now and learn exactly what hiring managers are looking for with CNBC Make It's new career-boosting online course where experts share their secrets for a dynamic resume, coming across with confidence, what to wear, and more. For a limited time, save 50% with our introductory offer. Register now at cnbcmakeit.com slash courses. Welcome back. Let's get a quick check on the market here. The Dow's up 115 at session highs. We were up 285, so we've come quite a ways off of that. About a third of a percent gain for the blue chips, about a quarter percent for the S&P and the NASDAQ right now. Let's get to Leslie Picker in the meantime for a CBC News update. Hi, Leslie. Hey, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour. Democratic Senator Joe Manchin urging Republican colleagues to support a bill that would form a commission on the January 6th insurrection on Capitol Hill. Manchin says he does not know why Republicans would oppose it. It's frustrating to say this, I will tell you. There was a lot of negotiations, and the leadership of the Democrats on both the House and the Senate have agreed to the uh, recommendations that were made to make the adjustments. There's no excuse for a Republican not to vote for this unless they don't want to hear the truth. The U.N. Human Rights Council has voted to launch an international investigation into possible crimes committed during the 11-day conflict in Gaza between Israel and Hamas. U.S. officials say they deeply regret the move and say the probe could endanger recent progress in the region. And a 21-year-old is the first million-dollar winner of Ohio's vaccination lottery. She's one of 2.7 million fully vaccinated Ohioans who signed up to win a prize. Four more new millionaires will be announced in the coming weeks. See how she reacted to the news and where she was when she found out tonight on the News with Shepard Smith. Back over to you, Kelly. All right, Leslie. Thank you, Leslie Picker. Ahead on Rapid Fire, Walmart minds the gap, Blackberry to the moon, Snowflake to the mountains, and then there's this. Wall Street is heading to the beach. We'll tell you why the weekly trips to the Hamptons have been turned upside down. Which companies and which stocks would benefit most? Coming up after the break. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a couple of stories that should be on your radar right now. It is time for Rapid Fire. And here to break down the headlines are Mike Santoli, Courtney Reagan, and CNBC.com tech editor Steve Kovac. It's great to have you guys all here. First up, The Gap is coming to Walmart as a home decor brand. The two retailers have inked a multi-year deal to create Gap Home. The line includes bedding, bath, and decorative accessories. It's set to launch on Walmart's website late next month. The unconventional collaboration is part of Walmart's push for more online sales and Gap strategy to strengthen its own brand. Still, Courtney, it's, uh, well, we should check on the stocks. They're both in the green today. Gap has been unstoppable this year. Athleta, a big piece of that. Uh, it's up about 70%. In first court, I was kind of lukewarm on this, but the more I read it, I think, you know, this, this could make a lot of sense. I mean, look, the Pioneer Woman has been very successful for Walmart. You know I love some hearth and home over at, at Target. And, and maybe Gap does have some appeal. I mean, it, I, I hate to kind of put it this way, but, you know, if you, it's, it's not a bad choice to have. Right. I mean, it's funny, Kelly. I've been thinking a lot about it and talking to different people that are sort of experts in brand strategy and know a little bit about both companies' sort of way of thinking. And immediately I thought about a conversation I had with former Gap CEO Art Peck years ago, asking him if he would ever sell Gap clothing on Amazon. Look Hmm. at Amazon as just another distribution platform. 
And at the time, he sort of said, look, like it's, it's not out of the question. Now, he no longer runs the gap. And so this was someone else's decision. This was Sonia Singal's decision here. Um, but I think because Gap's doing it through a licensing agreement, the risk is a bit lower from a financial standpoint. It is going to be a revenue stream. IMG is going to be doing the heavy lifting. That's the licensing partner that that Gap is using. I'm not sure what it really does for the brand for Gap. Walmart has had a lot of success recently when it comes to their home goods selling, and it's really helping their margins. And obviously, they're trying to help develop these brands as there have been outright purchases of some and then also some partnerships with, with others. But I think there are certainly pros and cons to each side of this deal. And Gap, the namesake brand, has definitely not been the one that's been driving that stock price higher. As you Absolutely. pointed out, Kelly, it's really Athleta and Old Navy. And maybe maybe both of those could be interesting partnerships with Walmart, although I, I can see why maybe Gap would be a better fit, less overlap. Steve, um, Gap, they say that this could actually be a more... Um, predictable revenue stream, you know, these kinds of monthly sales and obviously anything, you know, anything you can sell as a monthly predictable stream has a lot of value in this market. Also, they say we're transitioning from being a strictly vertical retailer selling apparel, which is exactly what Courtney was just saying. Yeah, and I couldn't help but think about Amazon when this deal was announced yesterday because Amazon really leaned into fashion and home decor pretty early, well ahead of Walmart, and that's really boosted them. They have um, this great partnership with Vogue where they're putting, have like this curated page of fashion. And again, like we were just talking about, Gap has had trouble with this kind of stuff. Gap has had trouble selling online during, or selling in store during the pandemic. This is a boost for them through an online retail channel. It is interesting they went with Walmart and not the big giant Amazon to give them even more of a boost. True, especially given uh, Amazon being under attack this week. Michael, give you a quick last word. Yeah, for me, I mean, obviously a test of Gap brand's resonance here, but also it's striking to me that um, all this time Gap has existed and not necessarily seen uh, the opening or the need to try to extend into home decor, really. I mean, Gap, like... You know, me and Sesame Street was founded more than 50 years ago, and it's for the entire existence of Bed Bath and Beyond and Home Goods. It's been out there. Martha Stewart partnering with, you know, Kmart and everything else, and yet all the rest. They didn't see the reason to do it until now. It shows you a different approach, obviously, on this licensing side. It seems pretty low risk, though, from both sides. Better late than never, all right, Mike? Better late than never. <laughs> I, I tell myself that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right, next, shares of BlackBerry are climbing higher this week thanks to the Wall Street Bets crowd. As the stock has jumped, so did the number of mentions on Reddit. According to the firm Hype Equity, in fact, mentions of BlackBerry frequently showed up next to rocket ship emojis. We know what that means. It isn't even the best performer this week in the meme names. AMC is up 75%, like we talked about off the top. Virgin Galactic up 40%. GameStop, similar. Fubo TV up 20%. Mike, what is this telling us? I think that asking why is a bit futile when it comes to these eruptions of interest in these types of stocks. I don't think there's necessarily a chain of logic that gets you there, except for they have been beaten down. They bent but didn't break. If you look at GameStop, it didn't go down below 140, even though it had peaked, what, 400 or something in January. And then crypto cracked. Maybe there's a little bit more money flowing in other risk-taking areas. Uh, And so it it sort of finds its way here. Now, the narrative is still, oh, these are heavily shorted stocks, not nearly what they were in January. I don't know if there's enough fuel in these areas for that. But BlackBerry is also an odd one. It was never heavily shorted. It honestly wasn't. There doesn't seem to be a big picture story attached to it except for, oh, they actually have, you know, all these patents or something like that. So it's really fascinating that it fits in with this group. Steve, it reveals that the Wall Street Bets crowd is older than a lot of people think because if they're looking back fondly on BlackBerry, you know, that wasn't exactly 
historically 19. What am I trying to say? That was that was an older play, uh, you know, that I think people would would realize. Right. This isn't GameStop. It's not AMC. Blackberry's sanctioned. No, not just ancient. They don't even make phones anymore, Kelly. So if you look at these other meme stocks, AMC is still showing movies in theaters. Uh, uh, you have Virgin Galactic still blasting people off into space. BlackBerry is a $5 billion cybersecurity company now. There's no, there's no meme to it left anymore. They kind of license their brand and sell some phones under that brand name in like Indonesia and countries like that. But for the most part, they're just a boring cybersecurity company. So I don't know why there's so much energy around it. Accord, it's almost like Gap should just wait around for the same kind of lift, except they got it because of Athleta and all the rest of it. They, they to me, would kind of fit the mold here. Yeah, I know. It's so funny. It's like I, I don't really understand the Reddit crowd and how they end up with the targets they end up. I mean, why not find a stock that has short interest that also has a fundamental business that might be growing so that you can make those gains and hold on to them for the long run? If it's not, of course, about trying to you know, screw over the hedge funds or some of the narrative that, that we heard initially. But BlackBerry is definitely an interesting one. Makes me scratch my head, but also makes me miss those tangible keys. I really, <laughs> really did like those. By the way, it's no only way. like 2007. Uh, I mean, that's when the iPhone came about. It's, yeah, it doesn't like, go back into a the A lot of people, on these, the, the they were born in 2007, yeah. right? They weren't like using the high BlackBerry users. You know what I'm saying? It's like that, that was 14 years ago, Michael. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I'm surprised I even remember it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Snowflake's at home in Montana. Let's talk about the latest earnings from Snowflake, which actually revealed that its corporate headquarters are moving from San Mateo to Bozeman, Montana. But they said they don't really have a corporate headquarters. The workforce is globally distributed. It's just required by the SEC to have one. So they picked Montana because that's where the CEO and the CFO are. The cloud vendor will still maintain a large operation in Silicon Valley. Shares are down 16 percent year to date. Steve, this is such an interesting stock and story for so many reasons from the performance even today massive reversal today the compensation uh, for its ceo that just the valuation like the biggest ipo ever i mean there's so many things we could hit on but I, what are we really learning in this move because it seems to just codify the way that the company has already been operating yeah and but keep in mind they're not just doing this distributed workforce thing, they have a really nice office still in Silicon Valley that right. they actually, we just did a story on CNBC.com about this and they totally revamped it for a post-COVID world. So it's not like they're totally giving up on the office space. They are going to invite people back in in the coming weeks and months. Um, but at the same time, Silicon Valley, again, we've been talking about this for the last year, they were so far ahead of this distributed workforce idea. Twitter, you know, probably the first one that came up boldly saying, work wherever you want forever. And we just saw the cascading list of companies uh, follow suit, either moving to Texas or just going fully distributed. Mike, do you think this is emblematic of kind of the changing workplace or, or what do you think is the most important takeaway here? Obviously, the workplace is going to change in various ways. Some companies are absolutely going to lean into it. And I think there's a sort of on-brand element to this when it comes to yes. Snowflake, right? It's the cloud company. The cloud is something that's everywhere and nowhere in particular. <laughs> uh, it kind of doesn't matter once you're established and in this way. But I still think even their history and even all of Sil Silicon Valley's uh, kind of uh, history points to clustering of talent and resources and services that really matter a lot when you're trying to come up with something from scratch. Oh, you're taking the other side. That's an interesting point that maybe the whole thing is just a, a successful marketing ploy. All right. It's almost Memorial Day week. It already feels like Friday to me, but it's the start of summer. And whether that's in the Hamptons on Cape Cod or the Jersey Shore, around here, a new migratory pattern is emerging as more and more Wall Street and Manhattan office workers stay remote. What do we mean? Let's bring in Robert Frank to explain more. Robert? 
Kelly, the whole business of flying Wall Street to the beach, and it has become a big business, has been totally turned upside down. It used to be you would leave the trading desk on Friday afternoon, go to the beach, and then come back on Sunday or Monday night. Now it's actually the reverse. A lot of people are doing what they call office laps, where they're based at the beach, and then they come into the city two or three days a week for meetings or appointments, and then fly back. What that means is that companies like Blade and Wheels Up, which used to be weekend businesses, are now seven days a week. Blade, which now runs seaplanes and helicopters just to fill demand, is running every day. Seats are $795 each way. But they're now selling out of commuter passes, which lowers that price to under $300 per seat. It's kind of like the Metro card for millionaires. We talked to the CEO about how the whole notion of vacation and work has changed this summer. It started out being people coming back very often, and now with this hybrid remote office work type environment, you're seeing people kind of stay out in their leisure homes or what we now call co-primary residences and coming back to the city for a day in the office, meet colleagues, a Monday morning meeting. And for those lucky enough to have those co-primary residences out on the beach, this flight out to the Hamptons only takes 30 minutes. Again, it's just under $800 per seat, but we priced an Uber this morning, and it was $600. Who knows what traffic that ride could be two to four hours. So there is a time saving. But again, this is now a seven-day-a-week kind of rotation that people are doing out to the beach, back to the office, and then back out again, Kelly. Crazy. Courtney, speaking of the distributed workforce... I mean, oh my gosh, I don't think you can fly all those the, all the way to Bozeman, Montana with that, but Robert <laughs> Frank gets the tough assignments, doesn't he? The, the millionaire Metro card, ah, what a, <laughs> what a nice thing to be able to, to afford. I'm going to stick with my regular Metro card at this point, but it makes sense. There's always opportunity out of interruption, and look at this new world that we're living in. If you can live and work at the beach most of the time and then just pop back in for a meeting or two, during the week, maybe you can expense that blade ride. I mean, I, maybe it makes sense for some folks. I just don't think I'm one of them. Well, I just love the foreshot here of, all, of us all kind of hanging out in the office and Robert's like <laughs> balancing on the wing of a blade plane. Mike Santoli, bring this Tough home for us. Tough to be us. Robert Frank. It's a loud 30-minute ride. Uh, probably no <laughs> Wi-Fi. So, you know, I'm going I'm to kind of go the other direction. Maybe take the Long Island Railroad. <laughs> Okay, some real-world advice. Uh, Guys, thank you all. Robert Frank, thank you. Mike Santoli, Steve Kovac, and Courtney Reagan. Want to bring you a news alert on Robinhood. A Massachusetts judge has just rejected the company's bid to block state regulators from moving ahead with their push to eliminate Robinhood's broker-dealer license in the state. Regulators had said they encourage inexpensive, inexperienced investors to place risky trades without limits. They have no comment on this ruling, but again, it would allow Massachusetts' lawsuit against the company to proceed. Coming up, shares of Molson Coors climbing nearly 30 percent in the past three months as the country reopens. We're going to talk to CEO Gavin Hattersley about what the return of restaurants means for their bottom line and how the pandemic has changed consumer tastes. We're back in a moment. Welcome back. The reopening of the economy has been a boon for brewers, especially Molson Coors. Their shares are up 30 percent in the past three months as America's bars reopen their doors and barbecue season heats up. And with a push into hard seltzer, can it brew even more gains? Can we add in any more puns? Let's bring in Frank Holland, along with a special guest to the Molson Coors president and CEO, Gavin Hattersley. Frank. Kelly, thanks a lot. And Gavin, it's almost the unofficial start of summer Memorial Day and the unofficial start of the beer season. Thanks for taking a minute to be here with us. Thanks for having me, Frank and Kelly. 
So, Gavin, historically, about 80% of all alcohol that's bought is bought to actually drink at home, and the pandemic accelerating that trend even more. Also, e-commerce alcohol. But for you, bar and restaurant sales, they're the most profitable, and they drive sales of your higher margin premium products. Um, what percentage of pre-pandemic bar and restaurant sales do you see coming back over the next few months? Frank, thanks for having me on. Look, we've seen a surge in, in on-premise and bars and restaurants uh, and live events over the last uh, few weeks. So we're back to about 85% of what it was before uh, the, the pandemic. And uh, we're pretty excited about that. It's got so many positive aspects for our, for, for our business. So we got to talk about hard seltzer. Um, you've increased production of your hard seltzer capabilities about 400% over the last year. You've seen some recent success with Topo Chico hard seltzer. Um, hard seltzer is just really popular across all demographics. With the returns of bar and restaurants, how do you see that popularity impacting sales of beer and in general driving those premium products? Right, Frank, Liz, you're right. We did increase our capacity uh, towards the end of last year by 400% in, uh, in the United States. In fact, just last week, we announced a 300% increase in seltzer capacity in our Canadian operation to meet the demand of quiz, uh, seltzer, and uh, busy up there. Uh, down here, the, the reopening of the on-premise certainly is going to benefit our big trusted brands. You know, Miller Lite and Quiz Lite had a strong uh, performance in the early stage of the pandemic as Consumers uh, pantry loaded and they pantry loaded with brands that were big and trusted and they knew well. And we're seeing that same behavior um, manifest itself in, in the on-premise now as it, as it reopens. Uh, consumers are, are, are still uh, focusing in on big trusted brands and Miller Lite and Coors Light are beneficiaries of that. We've seen a, a growth in share for both of those brands over the last few weeks. As far as Celsius is concerned, it's an untapped opportunity for us. A Topo Chico hard seltzer launch in Texas uh, about a month ago. It's been a it was a spectacular launch. Uh, there's a strong demand from on-premise retailers for us to get the product um, in their outlets. And so we're meeting that demand right now. Gavin, it's Kelly here. And not to be a downer, but I want to ask you about the cyber attack because we've seen in the last few weeks, you know, look at what happened at CNA, you know, an insurance company having to pay $50 million. Look at what happened to the Colonial Pipeline. Um, were you guys under a ransomware attack? How much did you have to pay? Um, what would your advice be to other companies who are suffering the same uh, thing? Well, Kelly, thanks. That's not a period in my life I want to relive anytime, anytime soon. Getting a call at three in the morning to say all your breweries are down wasn't, mm. uh, wasn't a happy wake-up uh, call for me. I can't really comment on other companies because everybody's company's factors and circumstances are different. From our perspective, I was so proud of our, of our teams. We, we had a desktop plan in place in case this ever happened. And uh, we had world-class experts on the, on the standby. And together with our internal brewery folk and um, our, our internal IT brewery folk and our corporate IT folk, uh, they just worked magic to get us up, uh, back up and running. Uh, we had our first brewery back up and running within 24 hours. We had a number of breweries up the, within 48 hours, and, and, and the rest came up uh, soon after that. So, you know, I couldn't be more proud about how our team actually reacted uh, sure. through, that, uh, through that situation. You know, we were speaking about this earlier this week, and one of our contributors suggested that maybe U.S. company that it should be illegal for U.S. companies to pay these ransoms because you could then come in with government support and say, look, we'll resolve this issue for you. But I sit here and listen to your story about how you got back up and running within 24 hours and wonder if you were in some ways barred from handling this the way that you handled it. You could have been dealing with, you know, days or even weeks uh, of delay or outages. And I'm, I'm not sure that's something that you or other executives would want is to be barred from 
if you have to, paying uh, to get your operations back up and running? Well, certainly it was very disruptive for us, uh, you know, Kelly. Notwithstanding the fact that we got uh, some of our breweries up and running uh, within 24 hours and the rest over the next over the next week or so, it was it was surely disruptive to our to our plans. And we've had a recovery plan in place now for the last um, six to eight weeks, and and we're nicely ahead of that. Uh, we're brewing about a million barrels of beer a week, which uh, frankly we haven't done. Um, well, we hadn't done for for about a year. We've done that kind of consistently for six to eight weeks. So, you know, we're well on on track with our with our recovery plan. And Miller Lite and Coors Light are the beneficiaries of that. Yeah, I, I know we have to go. So let's leave it on a lighter note. What uh, which one of your products should I drink this weekend? Well, it depends which one you want. If you're looking for a seltzer, um, try a busy. And if you're looking for a, for a light beer, I would go with either Miller Lite or Coors Light. All right. And if you're Blue Moon Belgian White, is, uh, there's a strong resurgence for that brand. Is there? Oh, good. All right. Gentlemen, thank you both. Gavin Hattersley is the CEO of Molson Coors. And Frank Holland, thank you as well for bringing that to us. Coming up, it's not just the Fed keeping an eye on inflation. Small business owners are reporting price hikes not seen in 30 years. We're going to dig into the numbers and what it means for Main Street. And a reminder that today is Red Nose Day. Funds raised for this annual campaign to end child poverty support life-changing programs across the U.S. and worldwide. You can support this cause by going to rednoseday.org. We're back in a minute. Welcome back. New data shows the impact inflation is having across Main Street businesses and consumers. Kate Rogers is here with a closer look. Kate? Hey, Kelly. Well, everything is getting more expensive on Main Street. The NFIB is out with data on average selling prices for small businesses for Q2, tracking with personal consumption expenditure inflation. Now, in April, 37% of small business owners reported raising their selling prices over the previous few months. That is up from 17% in January. Price hikes of 10% or more were reported by 12% of owners. The group says the frequency of these hikes has risen to a level that was last seen decades ago in 1981. Wages, of course, are also on the rise. In January, 25% of owners reported raising worker compensation. That rose to 31% in April, the highest reading since March of 2020, just as the pandemic and recession were taking hold. Now, reports of higher labor compensation were even stronger in 2019, but now it seems those higher labor costs are being passed on in the form of higher prices for consumers. Wages are also rising because, as we all know, it's very challenging to find workers right now. In the latest NFIB Optimism survey, a record 44% of small business owners said that they had roles that they could not fill in April. That is a new high now for a third straight month. The group's chief economist said that some businesses, Kelly, are even offering show-up bonuses for workers that simply come to job interviews. That's how tough it is out wow. there Wow, right and the Illinois McDonald's is offering an iPhone if you're on the job for six months. So it's hard to get them to show up. It's That's hard to right. get them to stay <laughs> uh, for that period of time. It's a tight market. Kate, thank you. Our Kate Rogers. That does it for us today. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. How do you land your dream job? It starts by acing the interview. Learn exactly what hiring managers are looking for with CNBC Make It's new career-boosting online course. Get the limited-time offer. Register now at cnbcmakeit.com slash courses.